This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. It just doesn't seem like a happy house. Right. I think that that's the assumption, that unmarried daughters mostly lived in the same family home. And that I think that that became an incredibly tense place for the household. That there's something about it that people understand to be not working. I mean, partly, of course, Lizzie Borden is notoriously frank and tells people that she thinks her stepmother's a mean, good-for-nothing person. And, you know, tells the sort of people that she shouldn't be talking to like that, like the dressmaker, for example, not just a close friend. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. My name is Cara Robertson. I'm the author of The Trial of Lizzie Borden. So I want to start with how does one tackle a story like Lizzie Borden's story that has been told, it seems like, many times. Was that a little daunting for you? It was a struggle to look for a new angle, to make sure that it was something that was worthwhile telling because it's been told really well before. But I found that most people were interested in focusing on the murders and very little on the trial itself. And the trial, it seemed to me, offered as much of a window onto the period as the murders themselves. And it was a story that I was well-suited to tell. Let's start with the time period. Where are we in time? Where are we in the country? And tell me about Fall River, Massachusetts. Fall River, Massachusetts was America's leading textile producing town at the time of the murders. And keep in mind, this is America during the Gilded Age. The topography of the town actually creates almost like a literalized map of inequality so that the people who are The owners of the mills, the people who are reaping the most benefit from the boom and the Fall River's experience at the time live in what's known as the Hill District, which is higher. And the people who work in the mills tend to live closer to the river or the water, which provides the hydroelectric power to uh, run the mills. And then there's an area called the Flats, which is basically where the central town businesses district and sort of surrounding little neighborhoods around there. So that's where professionals would live or people who had to go into an office to work. So why don't we focus in a little bit more on the Bordens? The Bordens were among the founders of the town of Fall River. And actually, a member of the Borden family owned the water rights to the Quiquichan River, which is, you know, extremely important title as a town like that is developing. And it's the river that ends up providing a lot of hydroelectric power. And through intermarriage with four or five other families, they basically end up controlling almost all the mills and any of the other factories in the area. And they all live in the same area, which is something called the Hill District in Fall River, which is the elite residential area. And then they run you know, their own little mini society with their gatherings that you would expect and launching the young people and sort of ensuring the continuation of the line. But not all of them prosper. And Andrew Borden's father was in fact a fish peddler, that that's how low he had fallen. 
or at least his branch of the family had fallen. And Andrew Borden himself is a self-made man. He begins basically making furniture and he becomes someone who provides the caskets, which is furniture making, and as well as all the items that you need to hold a funeral. It's a furniture business, basically. And then he sees his future in real estate, what we would call today, you know, a commercial real estate entrepreneur. In the realm of society and Fall River, where does Andrew Borden fall? Is he up the hill, midway down the hill? It's a tricky question because he lives in the flat district of Fall River, which is sort of for middle-class professionals. On the other hand, it's very clear that that's just his preference, that he likes to be able to walk into town and look at his building and speak to the tenants. And that's the extent of his interest, really. And so he chooses to live there. And he marries before he marries Abby. Is there a lot known about him before all of this happens? I mean, about his life and his personality and his first marriage? So he has a reputation of a miser and a a kind of a hard man to do business with. But on the other hand, he is also well-respected, that he seems to have friends among the most successful businessmen in the town. His first wife is named Sarah, and she bore three daughters, two of whom survived infancy. And Lizzie Borden was the younger daughter and was three when her mother died. And we know much about Sarah, Lizzie's mom. Well, she becomes a figure of intense speculation, you know, after the fact, after the murders, because there's an attempt to search for some madness in the family. And so there are investigations into her and her supposed headaches and rages and things that might offer some sort of explanation for Lizzie Borden's behavior, assuming, of course, that she is the murderer. But in fact, she is, like many women in this era, someone who just lives a pretty quiet life and very little is known of her personally, despite the investigations that the prosecution undertakes. Is there a way to contrast Sarah with Abby Borden and her personality? Younger, obviously. Right. So Andrew and Sarah marry at the time that younger people are expected to marry. Whereas Andrew marries Abby after his first wife has died. And, you know, it seems fairly clear he's looking for someone to be a mother to his daughters. And Abby is herself 37 at the time of the marriage, which is unusually late. It's not unheard of. And certainly women died in childbirth in that period or died early and there were second marriages. Abby's own mother had died and her father had remarried a younger woman with whom Abby had a pretty good relationship, as far as we can tell. So so in other words, she comes from a family where there was a second marriage and it wasn't that odd. But it's hard to see it as a love match, given the personalities of the people involved, given Abby's age. It's hard to say whether she just thought this was an attractive option, given that her father had just remarried and the family was not well off. And so, you know, it seemed appealing to have a house of her own, whether there was something more there. Well, it's interesting because, you know, as we get more into this story, I know that there's speculation about tensions between Abby and Lizzie and what might have caused this. And I have heard you say, though, that Abby Borden might have been the most pleasant person in that household. So what gave you that impression that maybe she was not the intended target to begin with? Abby's the saddest figure in this whole story because it really does seem like really no one had anything against her except possibly her stepdaughters. And that otherwise, she actually had had a decent relationship with them. There's a, you know, inciting incident. There's a an issue with a property transfer about five years before the murders. Her own stepmother wanted to basically cash out of the family house 
And that was the house in which Abby's own half-sister was living. And she was quite devoted to that younger half-sister. And so Andrew bought out Abby's stepmother so that Abby's half-sister could continue to live in the house, even though her husband's a little bit impecunious. And so her stepdaughters saw it as a sort of sinister act, whereas I think stepping back, I don't really think it was that. Well, it sounds like an investment for Andrew, right? He's buying part of a house. Is that what happened? It's true. You know, it was a... It's like a real estate deal. (laughs) It was exactly within his wheelhouse, something I think he was quite comfortable doing. In an attempt to mollify his daughters, he, in fact, transferred title to what had been a family house, something that was an income-producing property, so that his daughters ended up with basically an equivalent rental income. But it didn't heal the breach. How comfortable are you with the facts? How much do we really feel like we know was happening in that household? Can we rule out physical abuse or sexual abuse or any of these things over the years? What I would say is that the evidence people cite for some of those more extreme explanations, namely the sexual abuse or a kind of extreme cruelty, are either based on myths or are based on our desire to make the facts of the case conform to our own expectations. We're always looking at things from our own historical moment. Right. You want an explanation or you want a justification for the murders that fits the horror of the crime. Can't we just say she was greedy and this is how she took care of the issue? We don't always look for the answer with men, with male killers. Why are we looking with her? There's a very straightforward financial motive. And the financial motive also explains the order of the murders, which is something that otherwise doesn't make a huge amount of sense. If you want to inherit the entire estate, if you're a descendant, it's important to get rid of the wife who would otherwise get a third first. If you're an outside murderer who's coming to kill Mr. Borden, why would you kill the defenseless elderly woman first? And that's the part that doesn't that makes less sense. Well, let's talk about, remind me of her sister's name. Emma. That's right, Lizzie and Emma. It's 1892, so Lizzie is 32. How old is Emma? Emma's nine years older. She's 41. So tell me about their lives. What is life like with a middle-class miser who's respected and sounds like kind of a jerk and a stepmother? They live a pretty narrow life despite basically comfortable circumstances. The house is modest, but they have their own rooms. They have limited social lives that revolve around their church activities and other charitable pursuits. That was exactly what was expected of unmarried women of their class and time. And they visit people on occasion. At the time of the murders, Emma was in Fairhaven, Massachusetts, visiting family friends. So that was certainly possible. Those sorts of things were possible. But other than that, they stayed fairly close to home. 32 seems a little advanced in age to not be married. Do we have any idea what happened with Lizzie or with Emma? Well, we know that the average age of marriage then was, you know, around 20. And if you check out the society pages, sometimes people were married a little bit later in her basic circle. But there were a number of unmarried women. And if they had sufficient means, then they didn't work at all, except for the charitable work. She had some friends who were school teachers or who did things that were technically within the ambit of a woman's sphere. So they were sort of acceptable things to do. But I think we could say pretty clearly that the marriage market had moved on from the Borden daughters and they were unlikely to have those kinds of opportunities if, in fact, they were interested in them. If you look at what is actually available in the primary sources, you know, we see some entries from diaries of Lizzie's contemporaries. And she seemed to 
have been sort of an average person. She had periods of what were called like blue moods when she was an adolescent, which seems pretty normal. She wasn't a great student. She wasn't a huge uh, social butterfly. And one can't help but think that she wasn't given a real opportunity to shine. You can't imagine Andrew Borden holding a party with eligible young men for either of his daughters. And it's just not clear whether that was something that they were happy with or that that was something that was a source of great sadness. There's a family friend who's quite astute, she's named Alice Russell. And she said that they would have liked to have been cultured girls. Hmm. You know, in other words, they would have liked to have been women who could have maybe traveled more or did the things that the women in that era might have done. So somebody like Andrew Borden, what would his expectations have been for either one of his daughters? Was Lizzie just going to live with him forever? I mean, how is this going to work? Yeah, I think that that's the assumption, that unmarried daughters mostly lived in the same family home. I think that that became an incredibly tense place Hmm. for the household. And you see that in that after the property dispute, about five years before the murders, that the daughters live their lives as separately as they can within a relatively confined household so that they don't eat with their parents when they can avoid it. There's some suggestion that Andrew Borden might have been looking for a house on the hill for his daughters shortly before he died. Hmm. And I find that quite suggestive. To me, that seems like some evidence that he recognized that things were taking a turn for the worse. Yeah. I can't imagine that he would have done that lightly because he certainly didn't want to move there himself. Right. I think he was anticipating what would happen after he died. That he was starting to put his affairs in order. What would be the motive then if they knew, unless they didn't know, what would be the motive then if they were going to be moving out for all of this? We don't know for sure whether or not this was going to happen or what this would mean, but it's also possible that Andrew Borden was in the process of making a will or considering making a will. And he died in testing. I mean, no will was actually found. Oh, boy. So it might have been that he planned to make some kind of provision for his wife, you know, assuming she outlived him, and in a way that would have put his daughters at a disadvantage, or at least made them dependent in some way. Right. It's hard to know. Even if there was a clear-cut financial motive for the murders, and we're assuming for the moment that Lizzie Borden is actually the murderer, still, we're not talking about something that was just a cold-blooded killing. You know, kill someone, let alone two people, with a hatchet in that kind of manner, just as a way to get more money. There has to be some kind of deeper emotional unbalance at the heart of it. So let's start with the day of the murder. I'll use a police term. Is there an inciting incident? Well, the thing that is different is that Andrew Borden's brother-in-law, John Morse, comes by for a visit the night before. And he is the biological uncle of Lizzie and Emma. He's Andrew's first wife's brother. And personality-wise, he share quite a bit with his brother-in-law. So they remain friends. And he used to visit from time to time. He was originally from Iowa. and. A bit like Andrew Borden, he himself had money, but he sort of dressed shabbily and he was considered to be a sort of dubious character. He was a horse trader and a very attractive suspect, at least initially. But he's kind of the loose thread in the Borden household because he arrives the night before. So it's not really clear whether that means anything. But if you're looking for something that was different, that might have set off events as we know them, that's the sort of obvious thing. Otherwise, it was a household that looked fairly typical, despite the roiling emotions underneath. And the morning of August 4th wasn't that much different than any other morning. The elder Bordens rose early. They ate breakfast around seven. There was a housemaid named Bridget Sullivan, who was an 
Irish immigrant who worked for the family. Emma was out of town visiting friends in Fairhaven. And Lizzie Borden, as she often did, rose later and avoided her father and stepmother in the morning. And we know that John Morse, who was visiting, spoke with his brother-in-law and Abby Borden in the morning and then went out to visit other relatives around nine. Okay. So then what happens next? Now Lizzie is awake and her parents are awake and they're in the same household and nobody else is there. John's gone. Is Bridget there, the housekeeper? Bridget Sullivan is there around nine-ish. Abby Borden tells her that she needs to wash all of the windows inside and outside. And she goes outside to wash the windows and fortunately for her is spotted doing so, which gives her an alibi, which she will need because Abby Borden is killed at 9.30 in the upstairs guest room. She's felled by 19 blows from a hatchet or some other kind of sharp implement. And she lies dead for a while. Andrew Borden had gone out in the morning to tend to his business. He came back around 10.45. And then after speaking with Lizzie and Bridget, went into the sitting room where he lay down for a little nap. And he was killed by 10 blows, apparently while he was sleeping, probably sometime within that hour between 10.45 and 11.45. And Bridget's outside still working on these windows while these two things are happening. Bridget was outside for Abby's death. She is upstairs taking a little bit of a snooze. Everyone in the family had had what in Fall River was known as the summer complaint. Basically some gastrointestinal distress, probably caused by leftover fish, but it's hard to say. And she was sort of recovering from that. Lizzie, by contrast, gave kind of shifting accounts of where she was during the time. She said that she was downstairs in the dining room ironing handkerchiefs when her stepmother was killed. This was a task that was left undone, which was considered significant. And then at the time that her father was murdered, she was outside. She'd stopped in the backyard to pick some pears, and then she'd gone into the barn to look for, at one point she says sinker, and at another point she says some iron to fix a screen. She's sort of dithering in the upstairs barn loft at the relevant time. So the guest room is on what floor where Abby was killed? The guest room is on the second floor. So if you can imagine this is basically a converted duplex with one apartment on the first floor and one apartment on the second. So what Mr. Borden does is turn it into a single family house. And that means that there are no hallways. So there's stairs that go up to the bedrooms and off the stairs, immediately opposite the landing is the guest room. And then to the right of that are two bedrooms that open onto each other, one for Lizzie and one for Emma. Beyond that is the parents' bedroom, but that door is not only kept locked, but also blocked by furniture. So that means that if one were to go to the parents' bedroom from the front, one would have to walk all the way through the house through the sitting room, through the dining room, into the kitchen, and then up the back stairs. So it's not that surprising that Mr. Borden didn't notice that his wife had been killed because he would have no reason to go up to that guest room. But it is significant that Lizzie Borden was descending the stairs when her father returned Mm. from town that morning. She came down the stairs that were directly opposite where her stepmother's body lay. And there's a dispute about whether or not that that would have been visible or whether one would have ordinarily looked into that open guest room to look for a body right, or not. Was that Bridget who saw her on the stairs? Yeah, Bridget sees her descending the stairs. And there's also these really 
odd moments that are very difficult not to read a lot into, right? So the front door had been bolted, which many people view as significant. And so Bridget is sort of struggling to let in Andrew Borden from the front door because he can't just get in with his key. And she apparently swears. And Lizzie Borden laughs, but she's laughing at the moment that she's essentially opposite her stepmother's body and is descending those stairs. So could be a coincidence. If she didn't know her stepmother was there, then the fact that she's laughing at the housemaid swearing doesn't mean anything. Yeah. But it's hard not to invest it with some kind of sinister import. If we just remove all ideas that Lizzie Borden did this, is her story all plausible? Where she was, all of her movements, is it possible that she didn't do it based on what she said, the places she was? Yes. Her story puts her in the places where she could have not heard the murders or encountered the murderer. Okay. So in that sense, it is possible. It's hard to imagine that someone from the outside managed to get in via the side door, which is the only door in the house that was unlocked. Yeah. And hide in that house for that length of time, killing first Mrs. Borden, then Mr. Borden, and then avoiding the two other women who were in and out of the house and also choosing not to kill them. And was anything taken? I mean, what would the motive have been for this mystery person? The only thing that really would make sense is just an insane intruder. Who are usually not great at covering their tracks, the insane (laughs) intruder theory. Right, an insane intruder who managed to leave the house as one early witness said in apple pie order. You know, aside from the mayhem on the sitting room sofa and the upstairs guest room. So there's not a lot of tracking of blood through the front hall or from one room to another. With the exception of the immediate scenes of the crime, the house itself looks quite neat. Is there anything in your mind that says maybe there is another person or maybe Bridget disappeared long enough to do this? Do you have any doubts? I don't have a problem with having it officially unsolved. Maybe it is the legal training and she was acquitted. And also, it's just, it is still difficult to imagine that she could have done it and then cleaned up so effectively. There are lots of explanations for that that really don't come in to the trial. There is this pail of bloody cloths in the basement that are assumed to be menstrual rags. And that's the explanation that's given. And essentially, the defense and the prosecution both agree, like, we're just not going to talk about this. (laughs) Except that the defense does use it to explain anything that seems off about Lizzie Borden. They say, well, you know, she had her monthly illness. And women's minds are all disturbed at that time. So it's sort of handy. And that would have afforded a way for her to clean up. There's also a dress that she burned the weekend after the murders. She's essentially saved by her sister who says that she's the one who told her to burn this old paint-stained dress. And they were able to provide evidence from the painter and the seamstress that it had, in fact, been stained with paint. But of course, it could have been stained with some other things too. Yeah. We also know some things that the jury never heard, You know, namely that Lizzie Borden was alleged to have tried to buy prussic acid before the murders. That shows a certain amount of intent and it would have really punctured the very effective defense strategy of trying to suggest that she's just this innocent bystander who's just had the misfortune of being home at the wrong time 
And home, of course, is where she was supposed to be because she was someone who ticks all the boxes of upper middle-class womanhood. Mm -hmm. She's a unmarried daughter engaged in good works who lives at home. You can't really expect her to account for her time. Well, let's go backwards a little bit. So Andrew's dead. Abby's dead. Bridget's laying down with the summer complaint. And you've got Lizzie Borden floating around. Now she's in the barn. Is that right? When her father was killed? Right. She comes back from the barn, discovers her father dead. She summons Bridget. Bridget, who, by the way, everyone except Mrs. Borden in the household called Maggie because Maggie was the name of their prior housemaid. <laughs> Terrible. So she sends Bridget to find the doctor and the family doctor lives across the street. He's not at home. And then she sends her to find Alice Russell, who's a family friend mm -hmm. who had lived next door. And while she's waiting for Bridget Sullivan to return, she's standing inside the screen door on the side. And she's spotted by her nosy neighbor, Mrs. Churchill. And Mrs. Churchill asks her what's wrong. Lizzie Borden tells her that her father's been killed and Mrs. Churchill hurries over. And then after that, many people arrive. One of the things that I think is really striking to those of us who are used to consuming our crime through television shows is that just the number of people who are wandering through the house after the murders were discovered is pretty shocking. Contaminating the crime scene. <laughs> right. A lot of the primary sources were things like diaries or letters from locals who just happened to be in the neighborhood or who knew Mr. Borden and so came by to see what was going on. So it's not exactly, you know, CSI Fall River. Yeah, they contaminated everything, I'm sure. Where's the jump to then suspecting Lizzie? So first they do what you would expect, which is they try to round up the usual suspects who are the mostly immigrants. There's someone who's Portuguese who seems to be trying to deposit a little bit too much money. There are other people who are suspicious for uh, various reasons. But the police can tell pretty quickly that it would have been hard for someone to come in from the outside. And although they do diligently look for someone who might have met the requirements, it does seem like it would have needed to be someone who was in the house that morning. And the first person they look at is John Morse, the brother-in-law of Andrew Borden. And he fortuitously has this alibi that's out of Agatha Christie. He was riding on a streetcar and he said he was riding with six priests. <laughs> and the streetcar conductor doesn't remember him, but does remember the priest. And so that's sort of considered good enough. And okay. there is his arrival time at these other people's house that over on the other part of town. And so that seems to give him the alibi for at least Abby's murder. And it seems like whoever killed one killed the other. Mm -hmm. And then there's the question of Bridget Sullivan, you know, who could have been in serious trouble because although it didn't seem like a murder that would have been committed by a woman, immigrant women didn't white qualify as women as understood by that differentiation. Sure. So that someone like Bridget Sullivan would have been expected to chop wood and do other physical labor Yeah, that would have made it at least theoretically possible. But she's saved because she spotted cleaning the outside windows at the time of Abby's murder. And Lizzie Borden seems to give her effectively an alibi for the rest of the time. Her timeline makes it almost impossible for Bridget to have done it. So in that sense, Lizzie helps her out. And so then that really just leaves Lizzie Borden. And her story is contradictory. It shifts. She's the only person who seems to have opportunity to have committed both murders. And she's also the person known to have hated her stepmother. Yeah. There is no one else who disliked Abby Borden enough to kill her. She really shot her mouth off that much about Abby Borden to people? 
Well, I mean, if you think about what the code is, the code is you don't blab about that kind of stuff. And so it was enough. It was enough that it was known. And Abby's relatives were not shy about talking about the enmity in the household. In fact, Lizzie Borden would apparently cut them. And I mean that in the social sense, in the street. And that was also given as evidence of the kind of haughty personality that she might have. And, you know, the ways in which she doesn't hew to feminine norms are ways in which she becomes a possible suspect. Well, what are those ways other than not being married and having children at the age of 32? What else did she do that was so outside the norm for that society? Well, it's more of a question of the ingratitude. It is too much to consider that she might have really had a desire for financial independence. But it does seem clear that she thought she was entitled to more than she was getting. And she thought she was entitled to criticize her father's choices in terms of his investments. And that was considered a bit unacceptable. It just seems so interesting. That just seems so out of the blue. The whole thing seems out of the blue, doesn't it, to you? I mean, just what happened? Again, if we're assuming that this is the story, that this is the story of just the suffocating tension that builds up and builds up, and there's this fear of being cut out of a will or something. I mean, again, I mean, this is speculation. We don't know what actually happened. Could have been an argument. Right. It still seems, I I think you'd have to say, like, grossly disproportionate. I think that that's just one of the reasons that the case endures. If it had been a poisoning, I don't know that we would still really be talking about it. No. But it's that combination of the grayness of the existence, the drabness of it. The stakes, in some sense, seem so small. And then the shocking nature of the violence that it apparently provoked. It's not a surprise that people want a better psychological motive. And that the prosecution itself really was sort of hoping to find some insanity. Yeah. That would have been, however upsetting, at least that would have been an explanation that people could have understood. Shorthand the trial to a certain extent. Of course, the most interesting part of it is just the social commentary of all of this. All male jury, right? Right. It's also a jury that by design has only one Irish Catholic person on it because that's something that the defense is quite keen to avoid. There's a very clear division in the town between the Protestant elite or or even the Protestant establishment, even the people who weren't elite, and the Irish Catholic residents, many of whom were mill workers. So the idea is that these folks would not be as sympathetic to her, obviously, if they were sitting on the jury then. Right. If it had been a mill worker, that that person would have been marched off to jail very quickly. And instead, she's treated quite gingerly. And so for that segment of society, it just seems like an example of uh, rich people getting away with, well, in this case, murder. It's a very old story in this country, especially. Okay, what is the defense saying happened if Lizzie is not the one who did it? The defense makes it clear that it's not their job to unravel the mystery that all they need to do is show that there's doubt, that there's reasonable doubt to the story. And so they harp on the fact that there is no blood seen on Lizzie Borden, despite the fact that there are many people around shortly after the murders, and that she was also seen between the two murders by both Andrew Borden and Bridget Sullivan, which would have meant that she'd have to clean up twice. And no one in the household, no one outside of the household saw any kind of blood. And given the nature of the murders, that's something that they say strongly points towards her innocence. And you agree with that? You think it seems too much for her to have cleaned up twice like that? I think it's a place where there is some doubt. I think it's possible because she did have control over the timing. 
There's the burnt dress. There are the bloody rags in the basement that are supposed to be the menstrual claws. Right. So there are ways in which she could have protected herself and thus not appeared in any kind of disarray. There are a lot of disputes in the case. And one of them is whether the dress she gave the police was really the dress that she was wearing on the morning of the murders or whether, in fact, it was the dress that ended up being burned. And that would make a difference as to whether or not it was possible that she did this. The other thing the defense does pretty cleverly is that they point out every strange person seen in the vicinity, all the ways in which Mr. Borden, who is known to have walked from his rental properties in the town back home, all the ways in which there are gaps in his morning. Hmm. So in other words, there were times that he wasn't seen. And this just suggests that you just can't know, right? Someone might have come in. And do you really want to send somebody to the gallows when it's possible that somebody else did it? Is there a chance that Bridget might have been involved in any way? Personally, I don't think so. Because she wanted out as quickly as possible. She did not want to go back to that house. And so it just doesn't seem very likely to me. I just wonder if there was a payoff. Right. And there are people who argue that there was because she does dress better (laughs) afterwards. (laughs) Okay. And she's careful to make her story sound a little bit better at the trial than maybe before, though she seems like she has a certain amount of fondness for both Lizzie Borden and Abby. I think the best and the strongest argument in Lizzie Borden's defense is the fact that she just seems like such an unlikely murderer. Right. The Irish Catholic paper calls her the Sphinx of Coolness. And that's not a compliment. (laughs) But I mean, for the most part, that kind of bearing is viewed as a sign of innocence, that she's someone who is just bearing up under incredibly difficult circumstances. And that is the sign of American ladylike grit. Which also could be interpreted as psychopathy, perhaps, or something else. Right. I mean, it's very tempting to look back at that and then to think like, Oh boy, you got it wrong, buddy. Right. (laughs) Well, do we do that now? Are there still people that we look at? Not even just women, but people in general who go on trial. Yeah, I think that demeanor seems to count for a huge amount. I think that that's one of the things that's really stayed with me from working on this story is that it's not simply that in the late 19th century, women weren't thought capable of this kind of brutality. It's that there's so much about Lizzie Borden, her church work, her otherwise kind of but all existence that just seems so inconsistent with the kind of murderous violence. She's someone who is sitting there in the courtroom every day, perfectly turned out. She has a little special curl she works on. A hair curl, is that what it is? Uh-huh. And you just think, can you really picture her taking a hatchet? I'm much more sympathetic to the jury, I think, than I might have been at the start of this. I think I'm jaded because I honestly, this is the truth. I can picture anybody doing something terrible. I think there are times in your life that you are capable of doing something terrible. We don't know. Maybe she got in an argument with Abby. We don't know what Abby would have said. Who knows what happened? Maybe John attacked her and her parents didn't defend her. There's just so much unknown about this case, which is, I'm sure, maddening to you about it, too. Right. I think that's right, too. You know, what I was saying about her seeming so implausible, this sort of lady sitting in the courtroom, right, is that that's true of everyone. Yeah. Nobody, when they're dressed up in court, seems like they could be a person who does something terrible. But who we are in our worst moments might look rather different. So tell me the ultimate outcome, even though I'm sure every single person who's listening to this knows the outcome. There is an all-male jury. They look at her prim and proper as a middle to upper class woman of society, and they vote. 
Right. So after this, this for what was the time, an unusually long trial, very involved, the jury is unanimous on the first ballot. And they actually just sit in the jury room for a while so that they appear reasonably deliberative. <laughs> and they find Lizzie Borden not guilty. And they themselves then head out of the courtroom and go to a bar where they have a drink because they've been suffering under enforced temperance during the trial. And they have a picture taken of themselves and they present it to Lizzie Borden. Oh, I think if you put those things together, that you'd say that this isn't really a case of reasonable doubt for them. This is a case where they were absolutely certain that she was not the murderer, or at least they were not prepared to consider the possibility that she was the killer. And ultimately, she and her sister move uphill, right? They ended up getting a house on the hill. Yeah, they moved to what you might call a McMansion at the sort of highest point of the Hill District. And they keep the old house, which they rent out because they are Andrew Borden's daughters. So they know the importance of a good commercial earner. But in a sense, right, she gets the life that she wanted, but she's frozen out of her church circle pretty quickly that the pews around her are empty. And it becomes clear that the people who back her during the trial aren't going to necessarily want to socialize with her. Even though she was acquitted? Yeah, though I think there's something a little bit tribal about it. It's like an anthropological sense or, you know, judgment. In other words, that the people who, roughly speaking, were her kind of people back her against outsiders during the trial because it would have reflected really badly on everyone. Right. And then they freeze her out and basically ostracize her afterwards. It's a little bit simplistic, but that's sort of what happens. And there's also the problem that one encounters in other famous acquittals, which is that in the emotion of the moment, people maybe are relieved that the person is not found guilty. But then again, when time passes, you think, well, if that person didn't do it, then who did? Right. And there's never anybody who's considered to be a real suspect after Lizzie Ford. How does her end come? She continues to live with her sister until 1905. So that's 12 years after the acquittal when the sisters have a dispute. We don't know what it's about. There's speculation that it could have been about Lizzie Borden becoming a little bit too chummy with a theatrical troupe, including a particular actress. It could have been about the handsome coachman. There are all sorts of speculation. We do know that she consulted her spiritual advisor about events transpiring at the house and that she wasn't happy about it. And she moved out and then never spoke to her sister again. Lizzie Borden continued to live in the same house, drove around in a Packard that was specially outfitted with a raised seat for her dogs. She did a little bit of traveling within the United States and befriended her household staff and the children of her household staff, sending them special birthday greetings, signed Auntie Borden. Oh, <laughs> really saccharine pictures on the postcards, but often with a special delivery so that it would be a kind of treat for the kids. There's nothing really to suggest that she was especially unhappy. Hmm. She sort of had the life that she wanted. That's one of the things that I think is very striking about the end of the story, that she could have chosen to live elsewhere with the amount of money she had. I mean, she could have been, if not perhaps totally anonymous, at least not a figure of such notoriety. Right. But... You know, she chose to remain in Fall River. And that sort of speaks to, I think, the provincialism that she sort of couldn't imagine being anywhere else, but also that had, after all, been the height of her ambition. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Sierra Crane Murdoch on the Native American woman who solved a murder on her reservation. This was one of the questions that really drove me was, 
why could she become so obsessed with searching for a stranger? This story is an inversion of the classic white savior narrative. <laughs> she is a native woman who is searching for this young white man. And I think that's a very perplexing narrative direction for a lot of people. It's like, why? Why would she care? My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.